Good to see you guys today. Welcome again to Midtown Church. Uh, we're glad you guys are all here. Uh, my name's uh, Adam Brunson, one of the pastors on staff here. Uh, glad to be here with you guys as well. Hope you all had a good uh, Christmas break and, uh, and New Year. Now, we, we enjoyed it and uh, glad to be here this morning. Well, uh, today, let me tell you my hope. I hope to be able to kind of uh, stir up the, uh, the embers, maybe, if you could say that, uh, in your heart toward prayer, toward a hunger, a really a hunger for God uh, in prayer. And I want you to leave maybe with a little bit more of an increased vision and some tools to be able to engage prayer uh, more regularly in your life, to have a strengthened life here at the start of a new year. I'll just ask you a question uh, when it comes to prayer, or really when it comes to more of the effects of prayer, a strengthened life, a deepened relationship with God, a hunger for Him. Were there a way to access those in a real way, a substantial way? Would you want that? Would you want that? I think most people, the answer, for most believers at least, the answer to that is yes. Uh, and God gave us prayer. He really gave us kind of himself through prayer for that end so that we could know him. And when I, when I say know him, I mean that we would know him kind of in the way that Many of us knew food over the holidays. <laughs> I went to my in-laws and had maybe the best uh, seafood uh, meal, at least, at least, we'll say, in the last five years. Um, and it was good, and it was really rich, and I'm kind of still paying for it. But I wouldn't, turn, I wouldn't have read, redone it. That we would know God in that way, that our taste buds for him would, would be alive uh, that he would be close, present, alive to your heart, giving you strength uh, for your life uh, and conviction through his spirit. God, you, what I might say here is God gave us prayer to take the truths that a lot of us have sent to in our head and to make them alive in our experience. However, in my experience when it comes to prayer, there's just a whole lot of roadblocks. I'll just give you some of mine in case any of these, uh, you share them. I mean, when, when would I pray? Uh, when I wake up, I've got so many things about this day, like already pressing in on my mind. How could I focus? Uh, when I do try, prayer more resembles eating a bowl of dry oat bran than it does uh, a rich meal. Uh, sometimes I lose motivation when I don't see my prayers being answered. Uh, when I hear it works for others, well, maybe something's wrong with me. Uh, all these roadblocks, I think, can have at least a bit of like a cumulative effect. That it's just like an insurmountable wall that's really hard to engage on a regular and consistent basis to where you could personally experience what you've heard that some other people do. Well, if you felt any of these, you're definitely in good company. You'd probably look around right now, probably the person next to you has felt some or all of those. Uh, and even in the Bible itself, it's very honest when it comes to this topic. Uh, it's filled with people who are just like us for whom prayer had to be learned in order to access its strength, its joy, and its fulfillment. Uh, today, we're going to look at what's been known throughout Christian history as uh, the kind of the preeminent prayer, you might say. Uh, it's most commonly called the Lord's Prayer, found in the middle of Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6. Uh, Martin Luther called it the great prayer. And Jesus gave it to us as a model for prayer. 
Now, uh, some of you, uh, depending on your background, might have one other roadblock that's unique to this prayer and to this passage. Uh, and I want to address it because I believe this prayer uh, really is, is powerful. It, it's, it can be dynamite in our lives to, to lead to strength, to lead to life change, uh, security in your relationship with the Lord. But this unique prayer, this unique roadblock that can be in this passage is familiarity. Um, in fact, let me think of it this way. Like uh, when Kendall and I first got married, we moved up to Dallas uh, and I was attending seminary. We lived real, real close to downtown, two blocks from Baylor Hospital up on the seventh floor of an apartment. And it was right like in the landing path for like the Starflight helicopters. And they would come like our window faced it. So like that was four or five times a day or night. Uh, and so you kind of hear that at, at eye, you know, straight out, and you'd hear ambulances below. And we never found out the source of this, so we lived in that apartment for four years. You'd also hear roosters. Um, and so, like, all of this, like, and when we, we moved there from, like, uh, northwest Austin, which is tremendously quiet, and I even kind of, but after, it took, it took us a few months, but after a while, we kind of, like, adjusted, right? And I even kind of grew to enjoy it after a while. At uh, the end of... Um, being a year up there, um, our daughter Ainsley was born. And uh, that, of course, grew, drew grandmothers up to visit us pretty regularly to, to see her, not us. And when they would visit, I remember one of them on kind of the first times they, they visited after that point and heard that first Starflight helicopter come past. Uh, they were like, what is that? And we're like, what's what? And they're like, that helicopter, that sounds like it's coming through your window. You know, we, we had grown so familiar with its sound that we'd, we didn't even hear it any longer, right? I think the same thing can happen to a lot of God's word to us, and even speci- specifically this prayer. And this prayer has been so impactful for so many people for literally hundreds of years. I w- we got to, to, to check our familiarity so that we can really hear uh, what God has to say to us in this passage. Uh, so uh, let's go. This is uh, Matthew chapter 6. If you've got your Bible, you can follow along. If not, I think it's uh, on the screen behind you. I'm going to give you a little of the context before and after, but we're really going to focus in on the prayer itself for most of today. Uh, starting in verse 5, Jesus said, And when you pray, you must not pray like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you pray... Go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who's in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Uh, For if you've forgiven others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Uh, But if you do not forgive others your trespasses, neither will your Father uh, forgive your trespasses. When it comes to prayer, The idea is this, that we approach God, as Christians, we approach God as a family relationship in Jesus' name. Now, some of y'all may have been here last year. Jake preached a message on this very same passage, 
and spent a long time, in fact, I would say this is a big idea, was, was talking about this. What does it mean to have a family relationship with God? And so I just want to kind of recap briefly um, what he talked about there. Before we, before we really get into the meat of this prayer, let me just draw out an observation on, and really a kind of a wall of theological truth behind, the, the, you might say, the dam of these two words, the first two words, our Father. Like, what does it mean that we can begin prayer and have, as our foundation for prayer, a family relationship with God? Let me illustrate it this way. I, I love uh, the movie Lincoln. I don't know if some of y'all ha- have seen that. Uh, spoiler alert, it's about the President Lincoln if you haven't seen it. But in that scene, there's this really kind of frenzied meeting going on in an important part of you know, his, his presidency. And he's, got, he's in this kind of closed-door meeting with some select like, cabinet members, right? And in the middle of the meeting, the door opens and in walks his little son and walks right up to him. And sits in his lap and is able to talk to him. When literally no one else in the country besides the people who are in that room are allowed in there, he, his little son has access, right? Because he's his son. And to be able to pray our father, be able to pray a fatherly relationship with God is essentially about access. That we get to approach the Almighty as a son or a daughter because of Christ. That's our foundation for prayer. Uh, because of what Jesus has done, uh, we ha- we're granted that same kind of audience with the God of heaven. He extends his affection and his attention to us because of what his true son has done on the cross for us. There are other ways, though, to, to, to try to form a foundation for, for prayer. And let me just mention one of these uh, because it's one that we're all, every single one of us in this room are prone to. And I would label it under the heading, not a family relationship with God, but more of what you might call a business relationship with God. And this is like, just to, to give you a reference point, I would say this is what the Pharisees really embodied the most when you read the Gospels uh, in the Bible. That uh, ironically, <laughs> having this business type relationship with God can lead you to prayer sometimes even more earnestly. Um, because, in a way, you need it. But you need it differently. In a business-type business relationship with God is this. If I'll do this, this, and this, God will have to give me this, this, and this. If I perform according to his checklist of how he thinks a person should live and I measure up, then he'll bless me. If I, if I obey or pray in this way, uh, I'll, be, I'll be blessed or accepted. And it's based not on being considered a son or a daughter adopted in the family. It stands on a, a much shakier, fear-based foundation that if I don't do this or this, then these things won't come about. So I have to. I can't ever take my foot off the pedal. I can't ever quit striving or trying. And the Pharisees did this often and tried to build a life of prayer on it. And it doesn't lead to nearness. It doesn't lead to affection. It doesn't lead to strength. So I want to urge myself and each of you back to the gospel. That's to remember our helpless state so that we can taste the sweetness of being called a child of God and the benefits that come with it. So that said, that's the foundation. And I want us to just examine this prayer together. Because the disciples asked, Lord, teach us to pray. And this prayer 
was his answer to that question. So let's look at it. So we're going to see, uh, I'm, I'm going to put this under four headings, and I try to think of uh, A words, and not all of them fit, but go with me. Um, adoring, asking, I'm sorry, accepting, asking, and what I'll call for now, attacking. <laughs> You'll have to hang on to see what we mean by that. First of all, adoring. Adoring really is the entree of prayer. But for a lot of us, it's just not existent at all. If, if that's true for you, that anything that you would think of as adoration or worship or delight is absent from your prayer life, what it should cause you to do is go back and think back to your foundation. Almost always, it's a sign that my relationship with God is more of a business relationship with him than a family relationship. Um, if, we're not, if we don't begin with adoration and the foundation of God is our ultimate end, then I believe we're not safe people in a way for God to give, be able to give to us. As you'll see here, I think that's the reason why the Lord's Prayer is nearly half over before Jesus instructs us really to ask for anything. So let's look at these first few lines. First, uh, our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. This part of the prayer helps us, again, remember who we're addressing. We have a personal audience with the Almighty. Uh, Calvin said it this way, that there's nothing worse than to be devoid of awe. Rather, we should come to God moved by his greatness with what the Bible calls in many places the fear of God. You've probably heard that phrase, right? Or seen it maybe written in the Bible, the fear of God or the fear of the Lord. But this is, it's really, I think, an often misunderstood like Christian teaching. I mean, it clearly is telling us to be afraid, but of what and why? It can be probably natural to first assume fear of, fear of punishment, right? Um, but First John tells us this, that perfect love casts out fear. And when you read the context, it's talking about the fear of judgment. Romans 8.1 says, There now for is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if it's not fear of condemnation, what, you know, what is this passage talking about? And I really think a better hint at its meaning is if you've ever driven to the Grand Canyon and you, and you stand out at one of those wide, expansive views. Or if you're in the Rocky Mountains and you are hiking and you just stop and you're like, whoa, you're just trying to take it all in. Or, or just even more commonly, like if you're outside on a really clear night, you know, maybe even just a little outside the city, and the stars are just huge, and you ponder the distance that you, you know, whatever you know of, of your, your science and the universe, right? And you, you just, and you're taking it all in. And, and you feel small in light of the greatness I think those things are are a better hint of what to have the fear of God present means. To have the awe, wonder, and sense of smallness in in front of such greatness. Uh, Timothy Keller uses an illustration talking about it from uh, that book, The Wind in the Willows. I'll read just a short part. This is where mole and rat are meeting the animal deity Pan. As he's playing his pipes, this is their this is their interaction. Rat, he found breath to whisper, shaking. Are you afraid? Afraid? 
murmured Rat, his eyes shining with unutterable love. Afraid? Of him? Oh, never. Never. And yet, and yet, oh, Mole, I am afraid. It can be that, that, that we experience in front of God himself. Those who live in the gospel and its unshakable power should find growing in ourselves, paradoxically, both fearful joy and love of the God that you know. We would fear grieving him and disdaining the love that he gave us at such great cost. When we begin to pray this way, we're reminding our hearts who we're addressing, which helps us come with joy-filled awe. Um, Next, let's look at the next line here. Hallowed be your name. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So what does that mean? At best, hallowed is unfamiliar language. You know, really just think the concept of holy or to be considered as holy is, is the meaning of hallowed. But even holiness in our culture largely doesn't carry a lot of meaning. But even if it is grasped, there seems to be maybe a logical question with this prayer in this line of prayer. How do we make God's name holy? I mean, isn't it holy already? Of course it is. However, and this is where we begin to see the need for this prayer, it's not kept holy in our use of it all the time. Think back to the benefit of being able to call God your father. It's possible um, because, as Ephesians 1 tells us, we're adopted as sons and daughters. That's how we can approach him as God. In a way, if you think of the truth of that, we have, as, as Christians, God's name put on us, if your faith is in Christ. We represent him. What are, we, what are we praying for here in part is that we don't dishonor him, but rather that we live holy lives. Augustine adds another layer when he's talking about this, uh, to what this prayer's meaning is, that God would be glorified among the nations as he is among his people, that his name and his fame would spread around the world. John Calvin adds another layer to this that I think really uh, kind of pierces my heart a bit more when it talks about this. And he asks, he asks the question, what's more unworthy than for God's glory to be obscured partly by our greatness? Um, you know, ingratitude or even just a, a sleepy treatment of God's name when we approach him fails to honor him. To hallow God's name is not only to live a holy life, and to pray for the advancement of the gospel around the world, but to approach him with a heart filled with gratitude, with joy, and with wonder at his beauty. Uh, God, hallowed be your name. Next, your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. If you read your Bible, <laughs> you would believe this, that, that God is reigning now. But it's possible to like, resist his rule in our lives, right? For the time being, God allows it to be such. Um, you know, a lot of the, the, even the reformers taught, like, so what does it look like right now for, you know, for God's kingdom to reign in our life? You know, it, it has to do at the moment, like more with us individually, that, that the spirit himself comes into our life and can change our desires 
And the word of God that God's given us can shape our thoughts. And and in that way, God continues to, to reign more in us, you might say. You know, so in a way, firstly, I would say this prayer, it's, it's like a lordship prayer. It's God, I, I'm, I'm praying that I would give you more of myself, that my thoughts and my actions, as well as my desires and my feelings, uh, would be yielded to you. It's, it's wanting God's rule to be so present that he gives you a desire to joyfully and fully obey him. There's, I think there's also, though, an outward dimension to, to praying your kingdom come. And if you, so if you recognize with humility the present joy of knowing God and his rule in your life, Jesus, it, it, it pushes us to think of the promised day when, when ultimately all will be fully known. Jesus' reign will be fully known and expressed everywhere. It teaches us to pray and look forward to that day. Uh, your kingdom come is asking for a yielded heart to God and a longing for the day when his perfect reign is known everywhere. If you've spent time adoring God in your prayer, accepting really is what can flow out of that. Let me talk, let me talk through what, what do we mean by accepting. This is where Jesus teaches us to pray, your will be done. Now, your will be done is most easily prayed, like I'll admit this, when circumstances are, are, are pleasant. Suffering or loss, or even just kind of things not going, you know, according to your plan or my plan, make this a difficult prayer to pray honestly. In fact, we really have to be daily reorienting our minds um, with adoration for for us to even come close to praying this. Pray. Let me say, I think there's kind of two parts to this. One you'll see clearly, and one I think is is dovetails with it that we have to talk about together. I would say it this way, that praying your will be done has with it both submissive trust and a confident hope. Submissive trust and a confident hope. So first of all, submissive trust. Submissive trust to praying your will be done, it's where we're recognizing God's sovereign plan kind of coupled with his goodness and that he's wise. (laughs) He's wiser than I am. It's it's in short saying this, God, here's what I need, but you know best. You, you know best. This recognizes that, that even our present circumstances are from God. And unless we're profoundly certain of what we talked about earlier, that God is our Father, we'll, we'll never pray, your, your will be done. I mean, how could we be so sure that God is, is trustworthy that we could hold that posture in our life? I want to draw your attention to think for a moment about a time when Jesus himself prayed this part of the Lord's Prayer. Your will be done. Can, can you think of where it was? It was in Gethsemane. In that garden, the, just before he would go to the cross. And he pleaded in prayer, God, Take this cup from me. Take it away from me. But not my will, but yours be done. See, even Jesus himself, through yielded submission and prayer, uh, or really through prayer, came to this yielded submission. That's what I mean. And it led to our freedom. It led to us, our adoption. Right? Right? 
that, that's why we can pray a prayer like this, because we, we, ha- we can trust in the God that would do that. And really for us to follow suit, this isn't submitting, it's certainly submitting our will, but also our, the internal workings of our life, our thoughts, our feelings, all the things that kind of flow out of those so that we don't become despondent or bitter or grow in hardness, you know, when different things come our way. It's submissive trust. But let me, I told you this is kind of the counterpart to, I think, what Jesus is teaching us here, which is confident hope. Um, I have more to say on this in a moment under asking, but I really can't move on without saying something here. While we, we do pray in part to grow our trust in the Father's perfect wisdom, we're also invited to pray with confidence and hope that he'll hear our prayer. So how does that work? Uh, those seem like contradictory truths. God's will so perfect, we must yield to it. And pray with confidence because it affects outcomes. For that, I just mostly want to say that I'm really glad that Jake's back in town. And he said that he'd be happy to answer any of your most vexing (laughs) theological problems on this or really any topic. And so we're going to break now for him to come up here. Um, it, It does appear to be a contradiction, right? But think about it this way. If we only had this second teaching, to pray with confident hope uh, in the Bible, that God would just answer our every prayer, what would our world be like? Francis Spufford says this. He reminds us. He says, what we're talking about here is not just our tendency to lurch and stumble and screw up by accident, our passive role as agents of entropy. It's our active inclination to break stuff. Stuff here, including promises, relationships we care about, and in our own well-being and others too. You are a being whose wants make no sense, don't harmonize, whose desires deep down are discordantly arranged. And he, you might say he's talking about the biblical topic of sin, right? Of, of brokenness in our relationship with God that works itself out into everything, right? Even to our desires, if he's right, and our desires deep down are discordantly arranged, and God were to answer our every prayer, what would our world be like? But God's not like this. He won't give us what's contrary to his will. This is, this is good news for some of you um, who might never venture to pray for anything because you know your heart is such a mixed bag. Timothy Keller says this. I found this helpful. He says, don't be afraid that you'll ask for the wrong thing. Of course you will. God tempers the outcome with his incomprehensible wisdom. Cry, ask, appeal. You will get many answers. Finally, where you do not get an answer or where the answer is not what you want, use prayer to enable you to trust, to rest in his will. Just this week, uh, in one of my own uh, days of reading and prayer, I came across Psalm 139, I'm sorry, 138.3. It says this, When I called, you answered me. You made me bold and stout-hearted. I love that. I feel like that prayer, not only when we are, are submitting ourselves to God's will, but can grow in confidence in him, can, can not only is a prayer a chance to grow in that confidence, but create that outcome in your life as well. Well, our prayer is half over, and so far it's been all about God. This, is, this isn't any accident. We have to turn our gaze to the greatness of God 
so that our vision is clarified and rightly reframed. And it's now that the Lord instructs us to ask him for our needs and for those in the world around us. So asking. If our hearts are rightly resting in God, we approach asking fundamentally differently than we would have otherwise. When we're both satisfied in him and trusting in him, we don't come arrogantly or anxiously with our demands. So what's the teaching here? Give us this day our daily bread. Uh, Constable reminds us, as almost any commentary would, to be honest, that our daily bread is referencing our necessities rather than luxuries. If we start our day praying the first half of this prayer, drawing our hearts back to God, who's beautiful, who's glorious, and who's the one who fills our hearts, it curbs our appetites for praying and asking for mirages that would have otherwise, we would have otherwise been praying for wrongly. What I mean is this. If we miss the model Jesus is teaching us about who God is and how we relate to him, we can easily approach God asking for him to provide some other thing that could fill our hearts and our lives. But the Bible teaches us that, that God is our ultimate end. He's the only one that is capable of that. We don't seek him for some greater end. And if we've followed what Jesus is teaching us here, it will, it will help us recognize we have ultimately what we need in him. And our hearts can be full. This doesn't mean we don't, we don't ask him for, for needs. That's what this very line's about, right? But we pray for them differently. Martin Luther adds here that for people to receive daily bread, if you think about it, what needs to happen? We need a thriving economy, we need good employment, and we need a just society. So he says to pray then, give us, all, you know, all of us in the land, daily bread is to pray against wanton exploitation in business, trade, and labor, which crushes the poor, the, crushes the poor and deprives them of daily bread. So daily bread is not only resting, but praying for for God's ways to be known in the land so that justice and provision are made for all. Uh, Next, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Uh, Again, uh, Constable here shows us what probably most of us have already assumed reading that line, that Jesus uh, uses debts really synonymously for sins or transgressions. He says, viewing our sins as debts was thoroughly Jewish. Uh, Calvin said, he calls sins debts because we owe penalty for them, and we could in no way satisfy it unless we are released from this forgiveness. So this, this fifth line, this fifth part of this petition is all about relationships, right? It's about our relationships with God and about our relationships uh, with other people. If, if your trust is in Christ, you're not praying for salvation all over again when you pray uh, when, you, when, you're, when you're offering this prayer. Rather, this is confession and repentance on a daily basis to restore fellowship, nearness. Remember, think family relationship. I mean, if you hurt a spouse or if you hurt a friend, a coworker, a child, what do you do? If you want a good relationship with them, you go to them and ask to, be, to, to restore. It's no different with a family relationship with God. And confession and repentance are the gateways to those. That's why we need this kind of daily prayer. This prayer reminds us of uh, and causes in us a domino effect when we receive God's love, that it would lead to us loving others. Think about in the Gospels where Jesus is asked, 
Lord, what is the greatest commandment in the law? What did he say? He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. Unsolicited, he also says this, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself, for on these two commands hang all of the law and the prophets. And that would have been what they would have known as really the sum of the scriptures. So he's saying, the whole, you know, to his audience, the whole of God's word hangs on love God and love others. It's, it's, it's not even like one step after the other. It's like the heel and the foot, you know, the forefoot or whatever. They, they're, they're linked necessarily. If we're tapping into love for God, it pushes us to, into love for others, right? That's why prayer... Uh, Forgive us our debts should lead us to forgive our debtors. Um, for anyone maybe struggling with the second half, listen to what Martin Luther said on this. He says, If anyone insists on his own goodness and despises others, let him look into himself when this petition confronts him. He will find he is no better than others. And that in the presence of God, everyone must duck his head into the joy of forgiveness through the low door of humility. We're called to ask God for forgiveness as well as the ability to forgive others. Asking. Lastly here, uh, attacking, because I couldn't think of another A. Really, you might say kind of rebelling against the status quo of evil that's in the world. And in in ourselves. In two parts here, lead us not into temptation. What does that mean? If you're thinking for a minute here, James 1 says this. uh, It's where he tells us to count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials, temptations of various kinds, because they produce in you uh, steadfastness. 1 Corinthians tells us that uh, God is faithful in our temptations. To provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Trials and temptations can be the source of much good that God is trying to produce in us. So what is this prayer? I think Augustine put his finger on something very helpful. I can't remember if I put this up here, but uh, he says that prayer is, uh, the prayer here is not that we would not be tempted, but that we should not be brought or led into temptation. And to enter into temptation, as Jesus termed it, is to entertain and consider the prospect of giving in to sin. God brings about trials and temptations to grow us. Our prayer is that we would be strengthened by them, right? That we wouldn't give in or entertain giving in to sin. Deliver us from evil. It, the, the construct of the Greek phrase here can either mean evil in like a general sense or uh, the evil one that you would take as, you know, we might take as a reference to, to Satan, to the enemy of God. Um, either way, you, you might say that lead us not into temptation is prayer against the evil that lurks inside of us and deliver us from evil is prayer against the evil in the world around. Psalm 5, uh, which I love and has often been used um, in Christian history as, as kind of a model for, for morning prayer. Uh, says this, it begins this way. Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning, 
you hear my voice. In the morning, I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. In part, this prayer, deliver us from evil, is rebelling against the tide of evil still in the world. You can pray that today, the work that God has for you to put your hands to would bring about his blessing into the world. You can pray with humble joy that your friends, your co-workers would experience the same freedom, forgiveness, and Christ that you have. You can pray that deeply rooted evils in our city or in our world have their grip loosened so that justice and peace may be more pronounced. God, work against evil within and without. See, we, we need this model for prayer. We need the, we need the whole of it to, to strengthen us, to give us the kind of relationship and depth with the Lord that we need to sustain. Let me kind of end this part by, by reading something Keller said on, Timothy Keller said on this. It was so helpful. He says, Praying the great prayer forces us to use the full language and basic forms of prayer. If left to ourselves, we're likely to pray about the items that most trouble us at, at the moment. The petitions, hallowed be thy name and thy kingdom come, lead us to pray for progress of the gospel in our community and society and relationships. Thy will be done presses us to accept some things that God has allowed that are troubling us. Forgive us our debts brings us to list our most recent sins and failings, while as we forgive our debtors, forces us to ask ourselves about resentments and grudges. Praying the Lord's Prayer forces us to look for things to thank and praise God for in our dark times, and it presses us to repent and seek forgiveness during times of prosperity and success. It disciplines us to bring every part of our lives to God. Here at the end, I just want to leave you with, with something practical. Actually, I want to recommend something to you, a practice. Uh, that Jesus, you know, he gave us this prayer to teach us. Let's learn. I want to recommend that you start your prayer time by briefly praying through the Lord's Prayer. Um, that you would be personalizing it to your day or to your, mo- to your moment. It might look different then every time you pray it. But substantially, it would be similar, right? As we're, as we're trying to learn from these great truths Jesus is teaching us in this pattern. It's, it's simple. Take a line. Pray it, pray it back to God. And then move on to the next. I wanted to give you my example from today. Not to copy, but to illustrate. Here's a few things I was praying even this morning. Our Father in heaven. God, thank you that today you're God. Nothing has shaken that while I slept. And you're still my Father today. Hallowed be your name. God, you're holy. Help me to think of you as you really are. Today, as I preach and teach from your word, I pray that I would not be absorbed in myself, but thinking about you and your greatness and what's for the good of your people. Uh, Give us uh, today our daily bread. Uh, God, you know I can get anxious about money. Thank you that you're my father and you care about me. There's nothing happening in my life that's a mistake. Uh, You've got it in your hands. Thank you. See how that can look? See how that can work? Like, to be able to even use this prayer very practically at the front end of, of a prayer time to kind of, in a way, you might say, bring God back down into your world, into your vision. He's been there all along. <laughs> but it, it, it helps kind of blow the fog out and see things clearly.
This prayer is dynamite. We want to learn from it today and put it into practice and approach God as our Father uh, because of the certainty of Jesus' death and resurrection. We pray for us, and we're going to have the chance to take communion together. Father, I I just ask that you'd help us to learn here. I I know for me, learning prayer and still learning prayer, uh, God has been hard, and at days I've given up on it. Lord, I, I think you're trying to teach us something of substance here that we can hang on to with both fists. Uh, you're worthy of it. And Lord, I pray that you would give us grace uh, to learn depth with you through prayer uh, and to be able to access uh, its power. Thank you for your teaching here. Amen.